Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 19 for this next bit of our time together this morning. And I want to invite you to, to take a copy of the Bible that we provided for you. If you don't own one for yourself, uh, within arm's reach of wherever you're sitting, you should see a little black hardback copy of the Bible that we've put there just for you. Not just because it'll be really helpful to you to have it in front of you as, as I guide us through this story that Stephanie has just read, but, but also because we'd love for you to own it, to take it home and to read further and to follow up with us about what you're going to read there and, and about what you'll hear this morning in the next few minutes that we have together. Uh, as Stephanie has just read, we're going to be looking together at Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21 and then through the end of the chapter and looking at one of my favorite stories in all of Acts. What we've been following together uh, through, through this book so far is this Christian message of hope in Jesus spreading from Jerusalem where everything happened, up north through Judea, then Samaria, then up through modern-day Turkey and over to Greece, north and west, always north and west, soon to reach even the beating heart of the Roman Empire. And, and as Christianity has spread throughout this part of the world, it's taken root, and not just taken root down into the heart of the people who believe, but taken root in the cities that the gospel spread to, as local churches begin to form, as, as Christians begin to live together in the way that Jesus commanded them to, and as more and more people have been converted and more and more churches have been founded, the Christian way of life and obedience to Jesus has become more and more noticeable to those living around them. What we're seeing in Acts is that Christianity is starting to provoke a response. And as Luke begins to show us this response, Luke takes us into a really important tension in how Christians relate to wherever cultures they happen to live. Let me put this to you in a question. If those of us who are Christians are living faithfully in the world, Should we expect to have a good reputation among our neighbors or a bad one? If those of us who live as Christians are living faithfully in the world, should we expect folks to be glad to have us around? Or should we expect folks to see us as a threat? Should we as Christians, if we're being faithful to what Jesus has commanded us, expect gratitude for what we bring to our communities? Or opposition? because of what we've brought to our communities. I mean, Jesus himself in his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, this sermon where Jesus, the king, defines for all of us what his kingdom will look like and who belongs in it, says, let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Christian faithfulness should lead people to wonder who's behind it, what kind of God is this that they serve, and to praise God through what they see. But just a few verses before Jesus says this. Jesus says, well, blessed are you when others revile you, when others persecute you, when others utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice when that happens. Be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What should we expect as Christians if we're living faithfully in the world? Does faithfulness draw people in or does it drive people away? Does it provoke new converts to Christianity or does it provoke angry mobs who want to see us dead? Our story this morning takes us straight into this tension. 
After more than two years of ministry in Ephesus, Paul's time in this city comes to an almost violent end. It's a dramatic and a captivating story that, that points us ahead to a lot of what's still to come in Acts. It's a, a little bit of a precursor to much of the rest of the book. Things are heating up for Paul. And this story prepares us not just for what's still to come in Acts, what we're going to see together for the next two months, but also for our own role representing Jesus in our city right here, right now, in this time, in this place that God has given to us. So, here's how I want to handle this this morning. I think this is one of those stories that's best considered all at once and then unpacked later. So rather than walking you through step by step, telling a bit of the story, trying to drive a bit of it home, trying to learn from it for our situation, what I want to do is just give you a flyover of the entire thing. I want to walk you through how Paul started a riot in Ephesus and then come back over and see what we can learn from it. So I want to show you how Paul started a riot and what we can learn from it in that order. Let me begin with this story. The story unfolds in four steps. The first step is taken actually before we even, uh, before the verses that we, we've read already for this morning. The first step is taken in the beginning of chapter 19. This is what we looked at last week. And the first step is this. Paul, quite simply, preaches Christ day in, day out, week after week, for two years, Paul preaches Christ. Just in what we looked at last week, the eye-catching material was the stuff about the exorcists and the healing that happened from touching one of Paul's aprons, if you, were hap if you happen to find one. But the, the detail that should have caught our attention back then came in verses 9 and 10. That's where Luke tells us that Paul was reasoning in this hall of Tyrannus, some sort of lecture hall in the city, daily, and that he continued for two years. Just imagine that, friends. Every day, at least five or six days a week, week after week, for two years. That's a lot of reasoning. That's like a hundred weeks worth, at least. That's a lot of people reached. It's no wonder that, that Luke says in verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And, and we can assume, I think safely, that he was preaching in Ephesus basically the same thing he was preaching in Athens. In Athens, when he was there preaching to people who had no background in Judaism and wouldn't have had the same categories to understand Jesus that Jewish people had, he preached a different type of sermon. Luke recorded it there. The gist of it was this. This is Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. He himself gives life to all mankind and breath and everything. In other words, this world and everything in it, it's, it hasn't been here forever. This isn't all that there is. It's, it's only here because of God and his decision to make it all. He rules over us still. He's not an object that we make for ourselves. He doesn't live in temples we build ourselves. He made everything. He provides for everything. And it's not the other way around. It's a radically different way of seeing God than what they were used to. And behind this comes a punchline for Paul in his sermon. Because everything comes from this God. Because everything, including your life and breath, depends upon this God. Everyone must give an account to this God. And through his son, his son who died and rose again, we can live forever with him despite our sin. That's, that's what Paul preached in Athens. We can assume that's what he's preaching here. Paul was preaching Christ and 
We can assume he was preaching Christ because of step number two in our story this morning. Step number two is Demetrius loses his income. Step one is Paul preaching Christ. Step two, Demetrius loses his income. Here's where we move into our verses for this morning. Verse 23 tells us there was no little disturbance concerning the way and that the instigator is this silversmith named Demetrius. He's a guy who makes little silver shrines to a goddess called Artemis, or maybe you're more familiar with the Latin term for her, Diana, one of the most famous gods in that time, in that place. This was a a patron god for Ephesus. It was their special main deity. And Ephesus itself was home to this magnificent temple to the goddess. In fact, the temple to Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven Wonders of the ancient world. Perhaps you've heard of that list, an ancient text that cataloged. Here are the, here are the things, here's the, here should be, this should be your bucket list. If you've got disposable income and time on your hands and you live in the ancient world, go see these seven things. Things like the pyramids in Egypt, things like the hanging gardens of Babylon or the statue of Zeus in Olympia. This temple was on that list. That's how dramatic and wonderful it was. A major attraction. And with major attraction comes tourists. And with tourists come tourist dollars. There was an entire economy that flourished around this temple. Think of it like what's probably happening right now a few blocks from here over at Nissan Stadium. You know, there's a Titans game. Hope you guys have lunch plans on this side of town for after church today. Uh, There's a Titans game. And, And you know, it's not just about the football, is it? If you were to wander over there to Nissan Stadium, what you'd see all around the stadium are vendors. Everywhere you look, you'll see people selling t-shirts and hats and hot dogs. And if you go into the stadium, same thing. At every turn, you'll find peanuts that you can buy for five times the price of the same bag at Kroger. There's a whole economy around this tourist attraction. Same thing at the Temple of Artemis. People like Demetrius were making little souvenirs, little objects you could take home from your trip to Ephesus and show your friends what you got there. Now, for a while, most folks who weren't Jewish, uh, to to those who weren't Jewish, when they saw or heard what Paul was doing, it, it, it seemed to them like a fraternal dispute, like just an internal matter in this weird little sect from out in the provinces. It wasn't worth fretting about, and most people didn't. Not so long as all they're doing is peddling this weird, bizarre, ridiculous message about a a guy who died in shame on a cross. But now, now Demetrius is starting to take him seriously. Now, this message that probably looks so ridiculous at first is taking money out of their pockets. Look at what Demetrius says to his fellow craftsmen, the guys that he did business with. Pick up with me in verse 25. These, these fellow craftsmen, he, Demetrius, gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul's persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made without hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. I mean, that's a nice little flourish that he throws in there at the end as if it's all about the magnificence of this great goddess. You know, we don't want her to be deposed after all, but, but it's clear that's not what's really driving his concern. 
It's his wallet that he's mostly concerned about. Paul has told his customer base that all he's selling them are shiny pieces of fraud. Paul is persuading all of them that these gods made with hands are not gods. And now there's a danger that this trade may not be taken seriously anymore, which leads to step three. Demetrius loses his income, and then the crowd goes wild. Things unravel fast from here. The craftsmen begin to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And it swells like a wave and sweeps over the city like a tsunami. The action shifts to the great theater of Ephesus. This is a real place. You can see this today. Google it on Google Images after the sermon is concluded. On your way home or after you get home, Google it. You can see this theater today. It's incredible. Would have seated roughly 25,000 people built of stone up into the side of a hill in a format that looks a lot like our room here this morning. It's built for acoustics so that you could hear even 25,000 people at once in the open air with no amplification could hear what's going on on stage. Now imagine that setting. Imagine those acoustics. And now imagine people of the city rushing into this theater Everyone confused. Luke says they don't, most people don't even know what's going on here. They don't even know what they're shouting about. They just know we're all shouting now. We're all shouting now. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now imagine the deafening sound in a theater built to amplify the tiny voice of a single actor. If one guy could be heard by 25,000, what does it sound like for thousands to scream? What does it feel like? If you're Gaius or Aristarchus, Paul's traveling buddies, and you're swept up by this crowd and into this theater and everyone's shouting with you at the center of it, what does it feel like to be Paul who's, who wants to rush in there with them? He doesn't want to sit this out. He wants to be there. And only his friends won't let him get in there. What does it feel like to watch it happening and to, and to know this could end in, with, with bloodshed? Then we're told that for two hours they all shouted with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. On and on it goes until step four. Finally, the town clerk, a sort of mayor fellow, rises, quiets the crowd, and speaks the truth. Basically, he scolds them. He tells them, beginning in verse 35, everybody knows that we're the temple keeper of the great Artemis. That's not in danger. Chill out. There's no danger in these men changing our reputation or how we're known for for, for this temple. They aren't doing anything wrong to begin with. Verse 37 says, they haven't broken any laws. They're not sacrilegious. In other words, they're not stealing things out of our temple. They're just going about their business. Why are you guys so worked up? And even if they were doing wrong, he says, verse 38, we got a process for that. Let Demetrius and his buddies bring charges against one another. Handle it in the courts. And you can tell where he's coming from by the way he ends. Now, who do you think Rome is going to blame for all this writing? Not the Christians, not these men who seem so harmless, but all of you who are stirring up a commotion without cause, verse 40. And that was that. The uproar passed. Paul said his goodbyes. And after two years in Ephesus, he headed for Macedonia. Here's the end of the story. It's quite a story, isn't it? I just love the way Luke tells it. What a storyteller. I wouldn't mind seeing this brought to life on the big screen, would you? But of course, what we know about Luke, what we know about him is that even though he means to engage us with these stories and is clearly skilled on that front, 
He never simply means to entertain us with these stories. He always tells these stories to us because he wants to shape us. So when we come to a passage like this one, what we're supposed to ask every time is, why, why is this story here, right here? Why did he tell this story in the way that he told it? What are we meant to learn from it? How does this story build our confidence in God and who he is and what he's doing? And how does the story shape how we pursue the mission that he's given to us? So that's where I want to focus for the rest of our time together. Having told the story, laid out the details, let's go back into it together. And let's look at what we can learn for the mission God has given to us and our time and place. And I want to show you on that front, I want to show you three things. First, friends, let's do our best to live peacefully in the world. Let's do our best to live peacefully in the world. Luke builds this whole story to a climax that I wouldn't naturally expect. If you're coming to this story, you never heard it before, the way it begins, the drama of it. I mean, maybe this is a sign that I've seen a little too much American cinema, but I'm, I'm looking for these guys to be ripped apart. I'm looking for them to be torn limb from limb. This, I'm looking for some sort of showdown, not for it to end with basically a bureaucrat, a paper pusher, telling people to chill out, follow the rules, and then class dismissed. That's not how I'm looking for this story to end. It starts with a bang. It ends with a whimper. But that ending is no accident. Luke is telling the story that way on purpose. It, it fits with one of the main strategies Luke is using in the whole book of Acts, and one that will become even more clear in the chapters we're about to get to. One thing Luke wants to make really clear is that the Christians aren't the reason for all these disturbances. That the Christians are following the laws. They're not lawbreakers. They're not troublemakers. They're peaceful, law-abiding citizens. And the last batch of chapters that we're going to look at in our, in our series in Acts is dominated by Paul going from one trial to another, from one judge of one sort or another, and in stop after stop, the Roman officials are always finding this guy hasn't done anything wrong. And that all starts right here with an official who blames the uproar not on the Christians, but on the rabble-rousing merchants of Ephesus. Ephesus. It, it's, it's the pagan leader who makes Luke's point for him. Paul doesn't even open his mouth here. Nobody has to give a defense. The town clerk speaks the truth. Now, why does this matter so much to Luke? Why would he tell a story that ends this way? With everyone knowing the Christians didn't do anything wrong. I don't think it's just to get the Christians off the hook for responsibility here. I think Luke tells it this way because he wants us to know something about how we should live in the world. That we should absolutely be engaged out there in public, right in the thick of things, not hiding our faith, but living it out right where people are living their lives, just like Paul. But we live out there in the world, public about our faith, not as revolutionaries. We respect government as a gift of God's common grace in the world. Our default mode as Christians, according to the New Testament, it's, it's to obey the government, to submit to it. It's deference to the government as something God has given to preserve life and create conditions where people like us can flourish without fear. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 2. He would be killed by the oppressive government that he lived under. But he tells Christians to obey. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 13. He later would be killed by the oppressive government. He tells us, nevertheless, 
to obey. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells his protege Timothy to pray for all for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Remember, remember who is teaching and where. These teachings come from men living as oppressed minorities under what we would call a brutal imperial dictatorship that eventually killed them all. But they want to be known for obedience, for good citizenship, not for overthrowing the regime. And, and, and while they're at it, living as good citizens, they're not trying to coerce anybody to becoming Christians. They're absolutely trying to convert people to Christianity. That's their life's work. Everywhere they go, that's what Paul's up to. But our Christian living and our evangelism of people around us isn't some big power play aimed at cultural dominance. We don't have, we don't have sticks to threaten people with. We just have carrots to offer. We have Jesus who's worthy of everything. And that's why Paul's work every day, week after week, year after year, was a work of persuading and reasoning. These are the verbs Luke uses. He was persuading them. He was reasoning with them. He was teaching them. That's his work. Meanwhile, he held down a normal day job, making tents and paid his HOA fees or his taxes or whatever. He was just living his life while he went about telling about Jesus. He was modeling for us. And Luke would have us to know this was normal for the Christians at this time. A life that's peaceful and quiet and godly, aimed at converts, but not at coercion. So here's another way to put it, guys. Our goal has got to be to live peacefully in the world with a main posture towards our culture that's not the posture of the warrior, but the posture of the ambassador. Belongs to another kingdom who speaks for that king into this kingdom and does so with goodwill and clarity on behalf of another, offering hope and belonging to anyone who will take it. We ought to do our best to live peacefully in the world as Paul did. That's the first thing I think we can learn from how this story plays out. The second thing I think we should learn from the story is this. Friends, let's, uh, let's expect opposition anyway. Let's do everything we can to live peacefully in the world, but let's expect opposition from the world anyway. If we're doing it right, so to speak, at some point we're going to experience some cost for our loyalty to Jesus just like Paul did. In, in a way, guys, the, the, the Roman world that Paul lived in was a super tolerant place to be as a religious person. There was tons of different options for gods that you could worship. No one was that uptight about adding another one to the pantheon. In fact, as the Roman Empire spread throughout the world, a lot of times what they would do is they'd just take the gods of whatever people they just conquered and say, yeah, come on in. It actually helped keep people quiet if they could keep their own gods. And, and, and if there's some chance that there's some truth behind this god they worship, better to cover our bases, make sure they're satisfied and not upset at us for colonizing their people. Sure, bring them on in. As long as you know that at the top of the food chain, we all worship the emperor. Now, what we're seeing in this story is what happens when what looks like tolerance on the surface doesn't really go down very deep. We're seeing what happens when you at some point hit rock, where a person or a culture truly worships an ultimate deity for them beneath the veneer. At that level, where we're talking about ultimate meaning, ultimate hope, ultimate value in life, there's no such thing as a polytheist. 
at some level, everybody's pluralism stops and worship will be demanded. And when you reach that level and you worship Jesus, you should expect to be opposed. For Demetrius, that level was money. He gives some sort of lip service to Artemis, but ultimately he was fine with Paul's lecturing about the resurrection of Jesus so long as people kept buying silver shrines to Artemis on the, on the side. What's one more God? There's no threat here, nothing to pay attention to. He's not really worried about Artemis, is he? His glory is in his concern, or her glory rather. What he's locked in on is on the bottom line. And now Paul is threatening his income. So for Demetrius, the worship of Jesus clashed with his worship of money. That means war. Not long after this, as Christianity spread even further throughout the Roman Empire, and as more and more people became Christians, and it became more and more difficult to ignore what was happening, at that level, it wasn't money that Christians ran into, but loyalty to the state and to the Caesar on top of the food chain. That's what mattered. That's where the conflict happened. They were happy to have you and your local deity join the imperial family if you wanted to. You could do whatever you want to on your holy days, whatever days matter to you. We don't care what you eat or don't eat, what you wear or don't wear, just as long as at the end of the day, you worship Rome at the top of it all. That's where their tolerance stopped because that's where the real worship began for them. That's where the powers that be put ultimate meaning. I, I don't know of a better example of this problem that happened in Christianity as in the early years it spread through the Roman Empire than in the famous martyrdom of, a, of an early Christian leader named Polycarp. Polycarp lived not far from Ephesus in a town called Smyrna, modern-day Izmir in Turkey. He was the bishop in that town, leading the church in that town, and had himself been, according to tradition, Disciple by the Apostle John. That's how far back Polycarp goes. And he lived right here where this action was going down. And in, near the end of his life, around the year 155, Polycarp was this old man who'd given his life to building the church, who'd seen so much fruit out of his labors. So many people had become Christians. So many people had, had refused to worship, therefore, any other god, including the Roman Caesar, that the government, the powers that be, come after him. They want to cut off the head to kill the animal. His friends urge him to get out of town for a little bit, but eventually he was in fact found. And here's how one historian described what happened next. Officials tracked him down, speaking of Polycarp. Before surrendering, Polycarp welcomed them, offered them food and prayed for them. Only then did he allow them to transport him to the city. Upon arrival, Polycarp was ushered into the arena. It would have been one much like this, and again, just a few miles from where all this happened in Acts 19. They ushered him into the arena, and there a proconsul and an angry mob awaited him. The proconsul ordered Polycarp to deny Christ and swear to Caesar. Polycarp refused, confessing, that as Christ had been faithful to him for so many years, he would be faithful to Christ. If you imagine, Polycarp said, that I will swear by Caesar's fortune, as you put it, pretending not to know who I am, I will tell you plainly, I'm a Christian. The proconsul threatened to throw Polycarp to the beasts, but Polycarp answered back, called him. 
do what you want. And they did. Polycarp first was set on fire and then killed by the sword. Because in that tolerant Roman Empire, famed for its polytheism and pluralism, Polycarp ran into their true Lord and could not worship. Now, praise the Lord, we are a long way from martyrdom around here. Most of us won't have to face the cost that they faced. Most of us won't be asked to worship a false god or be killed. But guys, there is no such thing as an accommodating host environment for genuine Christianity. No such thing. One way or another, our worship of Christ will clash with what our neighbors are worshiping instead of him. In a lot of ways, our society is a lot like Rome. We celebrate our pluralism and tolerance. And there is a ton of space here to pursue the good life however you define it. There's room for all sorts of philosophies about what sort of uh, lifestyle will lead to the most pleasure or goodness in the world. And if Christ were were to us a, a lot more like a lifestyle preference, if Christ were for us a lot more like our tastes in music or art or good fiction or fashion, there'd be no reason to expect any opposition to Christ at all, to Christianity at all. I mean, who cares if you like modern country and I like the classic stuff? Who cares if you dig top 40 stations and I prefer Americana? Who cares? Because ultimately, you know, you do you and I'll do me and it's fine. The tolerance of our society doesn't go, as, uh, doesn't go so far that it can accommodate a Christ who's more than a preference in music, art, fashion, or food. We believe that Jesus is really real. A man who really lived, really died, really rose, and now really reigns over all things, including our lives. We believe that he's worthy of absolute, ultimate love and obedience. And even when individuals and institutions around us don't have what look like personal gods, like that one, like ours, at some level, deep enough, you dig far enough down, there will be one, a true God to them, an ultimate reality they look to and live beneath, some source of final hope and confidence that they sacrifice to. And at some point, as happened with Paul in Ephesus, friends, at some point we have to be realistic. My worship of my God will mean denying worship to yours. So long as we're living in the world, but not, uh, but not of the world, taking our faith seriously and trying to apply it all the way down openly and honestly, that clash, that worship war will happen. And I don't know where it'll happen for you. I know for a lot of you, I've known many friends for, for whom that clash has come in their jobs because they are in demanding and high-producing fields that are fine for you to have a church and a family so long as the first cut goes to your career, so long as you sacrifice most to your job. And when you don't, when you're not willing to, when you say no to career advancement because you're saying yes to the kingdom of Christ that's playing out right here in our relationships with one another, there may be a cost. Your God may clash with theirs. 
I know for many others of you in this room, costs are rising in the field of education because you serve as professors or you work as students where freedom of thought and diversity of opinion are celebrated, where religious believers are certainly welcomed up to the point where you can't affirm the ruling definition of what it means to be human and what it means to be free. I don't, I don't know where exactly it'll happen for you guys. But at some point, you should expect a clash of gods. And yes, absolutely, Jesus said, Christians should be known for their good works. We should live as lights that shine so that God is glorified. Yes, that's true. But I've heard some Christians talk as if likability by everyone in the face of everyone is a sign of our faithfulness. It isn't always. Sometimes it's precisely our faithfulness to Jesus that will be alienating to others, that will cause us to be disliked, unwelcomed where we are. And friends, if you never ever find yourself on the outside looking in, unable to join in what everyone else is doing, doing something everyone else thinks is foolish, friends, that may be a sign that you've been willing to worship whatever God matters most to those around you careful and pray. Pray that the Lord will make us, your friends here in this room, ready to pay whatever costs come from worship of Jesus exclusively and above all. And pray for your friends that the Lord will give them strength to say without ravering, all I have is Christ. Now, there's one more encouragement that I think we have to consider before we can finish this story and do it justice. We definitely should remember, friends, to live peacefully in the world as as long as it falls to us, however we're able to. Our goal is to be at peace and to live godly and quiet lives. We should also expect to be opposed anyway because we're Christians and worship means war. But there's, there's one more thing that I want to show you in this story. One more thing I want to encourage you to remember. Friends, let's remember and let's help each other remember that, that Christ is worth it. He really is worth it. I, I, I know that, that often the assumption is when Christians talk about Jesus as the only way a person can be deeply and truly redeemed and restored, When when Christians talk about the fact that other sources of hope besides Christ, however well-meaning they are, are ultimately empty. When 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 we talk about Jesus as the only way to peace with God and life everlasting, it will often be assumed that that comes from a posture of ignorance and arrogance. And any Christian who's really paying attention to his own heart, <laughs> will be, we'll be the first one to stand up and say, you know what? I am a lot more ignorant and a lot more arrogant than I wish I was. Lord willing, I, I'm more ignorant and arrogant today than I will be next year. Check in then and let's see how I'm doing. Any Christian who's paying attention is going to cop to that. Ignorant, yes. Arrogant, yeah, way more than I wish. But we will also push back gently and graciously but forcefully and say that... <laughs> I may be arrogant, but that's not why I'm insisting that the only true hope in life and in death is Jesus Christ living, the one who died, but is raised again and rules over all. That comes not from arrogance, but from love. 
Friends, when you read a great book, I mean a truly great book, and you've got a friend that you know well enough to know this book is perfect for them, what do you do about that? I mean, a few weeks ago, I was chatting with a couple of buddies about what we've been reading. One of them was, was really insistent that this specific book with a specific essay was going to be exactly what I needed for a fulfilled life. I loved the passion behind it. And you know what? A couple of weeks later, the book showed up at my house, mailed from hundreds of miles away, because that friend loved that book. He wanted it to get the glory that it deserves. And he loved me. He wanted me to get the joy he knew I'd get from it. He played matchmaker because that's what you do when you think you've got something wonderful that someone else needs and would enjoy. Now imagine, friends, that the stakes are different, much higher. Now imagine that you're, you're down on the Gulf Coast a month or so ago when Hurricane Ida was bearing down. And imagine you're on the beach and you know what's coming. And next to you are friends who've, who are still kind of sheltered under one of those 10 by 10 nylon canopies that you can get from Walmart. You know, it's, 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 it's worked down into the sand and held there by little six inch tiny cheap pieces of metal. That's what they've got for shelter. But you know, right over here on a foundation of stone reinforced by by steel is a shelter that can stand up to those winds that's coming. It's, it's, it's elevated. It'll handle the flooding. And there's room there. There's plenty of room that anyone can get in on it. Now, in that situation, is it arrogant to look at your friend under their canopy and say, that canopy's not going to hold up to it, not to what's coming? Does niceness, does humility require saying, I love that canopy. Boy, look at that shade of blue and the way that it blocks the sun but lets the breeze in. That's a, that canopy's got so many wonderful features. I'm so glad you have it and enjoy it. I'm glad it's working out so well for you. Can you explain that kind of response by anything other than just indifference? When you know they'll be blown away by what's coming. You know, love demands more than that. Love demands that you say, get out from under that canopy. And come in here with me. You can live in here. You're safe in here. There's room for you in here. We want you in here. Friends, is that arrogance? That's love. Christians believe that Jesus is far more than an idea or a philosophy of life or a self-help strategy or a therapeutic resource for coping with my feelings of inadequacy. And he must be more for us to have any hope. Because a Christian knows, here's what a Christian knows. A Christian knows I am guilty before God for my sin. I haven't just let myself down. I haven't just fallen short of my own expectations for me. I haven't just hurt other people by my mistreatment of them. As true as, as those things may be. I've sinned against the God who made me. The God on whose love and goodness I've depended for every breath I've ever taken. All the while, breathing in his air while neglecting him, dishonoring him, presuming on him over and over and over. A Christian knows this and that this has happened not in the realm of ideas, not just in history, but here in real time, in my life. That's what I've done. I can't forgive myself for that. Only God can forgive me. 
And Jesus lived and died in a history as real as the history in which I have sinned against him so that he could pay what it costs to forgive me for my sin. A Christian knows that. A Christian knows also, I, I'm dying. My life is already winding down. Lord willing, not today and not tomorrow, not even five decades from now, but I'm not gonna escape. I'm not gonna be the one guy to escape what no one else in history has ever escaped. And that means no matter how many hours I put into my work, no matter how many of my hopes and dreams I may reach, no matter what I'm able to accomplish in a hundred years time, nobody alive is gonna remember me at all. They're not gonna remember any of it. What does it mean to live a meaningful life that no one anywhere will ever remember? A Christian knows this, but knows that Christ is risen. He's risen. And he knows my name. And he will not forget me. And on a day of his choosing, by his unstoppable power, I will rise with him and live as he lives. A Christian knows that anyone from anywhere can enjoy what Jesus offers. If only they'll trade in that nylon tent for the shelter built on the rock. Now holding out that hope, holding out that hope may come off as arrogant because it is an exclusive offering. And holding on to that hope when Jesus' lordship brings us into a clash with other lords, that may come with painful consequences. That's true. But the Christ who died has also risen. And he will come again. And he's worth whatever it costs us in the meantime. So will you pray with me now? that this Lord, the only Lord who is, will give us the confidence and joy to worship him until he comes again. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus who is so worthy of your love so high a cost to pay for our forgiveness but whom you gave up anyway because you so love the world and we ask you for the strength to trust in and confidently offer this Christ where you've put us when you've put us around whom you've put us and we pray that through our worship of Jesus, whatever it may cost us, others would come to worship him too. And we pray that you would do this work in us even this morning to build our confidence and joy and our courage because of what you have said to us in your word. We pray to you these things in Jesus' name, amen.